I want to read three verses in your hearing, beginning in Exodus chapter 23 and verse 13. Exodus 23 and verse 13. I want to read this verse and then uh, I want to read two other passages, try to give you the context of what our comments will be about this morning. Exodus 23 and 13 says, And in all things that I have said unto you, be circumspect, and make no mention of the name of other gods, neither let it be heard out of thy mouth. Going back now to the Old Testament, there was this law that they were not even to speak the name of any other god. And then turning your attention to the book of Judges chapter 6 and verse 32. Judges chapter 6 and verse 32. It reads as follows, Therefore... On that day, he called him Jeroboam, saying, Let Baal plead against him because he had thrown down his altar. This is referring to Gideon as his father uh, renames him, gives him this nickname, Jeroboam. And uh, it has the meaning of let Baal plead or contend against him. And then reading over in the book of Second Samuel, Chapter 11 and verse 21, 2 Samuel 11:21, it says, Who smote Abimelech, the son of Jerobesheth? Did not a woman cast a piece of a millstone upon him from the wall that he died in Thebes? Why went ye nigh the wall? Then say thou, thy servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. I would like to speak uh, on this subject this morning. Jeroboam is dead. Jeroboam is dead. Would you bow your heads and pray? Lord, we are thankful to be in your house today. Thankful for the opportunity to look to the Word of God. We ask you, Lord, that you would anoint this message. Anoint hearts and minds to receive your Word. And we will give you praise for all things in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. amen. You may be seated and thank you for standing. Uh, the story of Gideon in the book of the Bible, we read it from the book of Judges, and it's a very uh, interesting passage of Scripture. Uh, Gideon is a man who is just uh, working for his father, uh, working in the fields. Uh, he does not consider himself to be an important individual. In fact, when the angel of the Lord visits him for a, a special mission from God, he immediately dismisses himself as being uh, of the smallest tribe and being the least of his family and and totally uh, acknowledges the unimportance of his role in what this plan may be. Of course, the angel uh, continues to stress uh, to Gideon the importance of this mission and that he is going to be equipped with what he needs to accomplish this. And of course, the mission is to deliver the children of Israel from the Midianites. The Midianites are just a, a rogue of bandits. They are, they are a group of people that are just sort of renegades and they would, they would come in and they would take the grain and they would take the harvest from the Israelites and, and they were a much more powerful uh, nation than the children of Israel. Children of Israel had backslid at this time. They were worshiping false gods. They had built idols to Baal and uh, they had simply no moral high ground. They had no uh, strength because... Uh, their assistance from God had dissipated. And certainly we would do well as a nation and as a people to recognize that we have been blessed because 
of the Judeo-Christian values that we have been founded upon. But just as much as God has blessed us, if He removes His hand of blessing from us, we would become most vulnerable of all. We would know what it is to have to live a life without God's blessings and assistance. I don't want to have to go there. I want God to be a part of my home. I want God to be a part of my life. I want God to be a part of my children's life. I want God to be a part of this country. I want God and the biblical principles that we live by to be paramount in our minds and in our thinking. But uh, Gideon was very fearful of this assignment. And so uh, he put forth a number of tests to make sure this was God and not just his own imagination. And, and the angel of the Lord instructed him uh, that he was to tear down the groves of Baal. Baal being this false god. And his father, Joash, was a worshiper of Baal. And, and so at night, Gideon uh, got some of his friends together and they went and they tore down these idols of Baal and they uh, cut down the groves because the groves were a part of their worship to Baal. And they would assign certain area of the wood and they would make that uh, to be a sacred area of wood. And they would worship uh, the trees as they did the false idol of Baal. And so uh, Gideon, he goes about with his men and following the commandment of God, he begins to tear down this grove and to tear down these idols. And as he begins to tear down all of these idols and groves uh, with his friends, uh, the sun begins to rise and the word quickly gets out uh, that uh, Gideon indeed uh, and his men have tore down uh, the idols of Baal, that they have uh, built up on these high places and they've assigned it as to be a part of their daily routine of false worship. And so uh, they decide that they will kill Gideon because uh, of what he has done. And, and they go to his father's house, uh, uh, Joash. Joash was also one who was very instrumental in the building of this grove and of the building of this false worship to, uh, to Baal. This was an idol worshiper. Gideon's own father was an idol worshiper. And so these men of the city come to him and say, Joash, we must take your son. He has tore down our idols and he has uh, desecrated uh, to the sacred God of Baal and he has destroyed these groves. And uh, uh, Joash says to these men, if Baal is the powerful God that we know him to be, then let Baal fight his battle. Let Baal take care of my son. Uh, you don't have to be his soldiers. You don't have to do his bidding. You can let your God, Baal, do it. Now, I think at this point, Joash was admitting that he knew his God was limited. He knew that Baal could not uh, defeat his son, uh, that indeed he was a false God. But whatever the case, Joash uh, agreed to that. And maybe the men did not agree with it at first. And, and so maybe uh, uh, his father had to put uh, a little more uh, assertiveness uh, in this declaration. And so uh, he says, uh, we will name Gideon Jeroboam. And by naming him Jeroboam, he puts this identity on his son. And the identity simply means Baal strives or Baal will contend. And so uh, throughout the scripture, immediately in the chapters that follow this story, we see that Gideon is referred to as Jeroboam. He's now got this identity that Baal will contend or Baal will fight. He puts this nickname, as it were, on his son. And so from that day forward, Gideon is known among his comrades as Jeroboam. That does not stop God from blessing him. 
He tells uh, Gideon, you must assign all the men to come together and 32,000 of them do. He decides that he's going to give them the victory. They're going to defeat the Midianites. Uh, and so he says, Gideon, rally all the men together. And so he does. And then he sees 32,000. And that was just a drop in the bucket compared to the vast army of the Midianites. They were thousands of thousands. The Bible describes them as being so many people you couldn't count them. They were like grasshoppers in a field. I mean, you couldn't even count their camels. There, there was such a vast army. of a, But God said, uh, Gideon, you've got too many men. What do you mean, too many men? You know? 32,000 is nothing compared to the battle, compared to the enemy. But oh, my friend, when God is on your side, you don't have to worry about what it looks like with human eyes, vision, or understanding. One with God is a majority. And if God be for you, who can be against you? He tells Gideon, tell all the men that are afraid to go home. And so Gideon does, and 22,000 of them go home. And and then there's 10,000 left, you know, and it's just Gideon, these 10,000 men, and and the Lord says, you still got too many. Take them down to the water and let's see how they drink water. And let's see if they're vigilant looking into the hills or they just jump down there and put their head in the water. And so uh, he gives them the water test. And they go down and 9,700 of them just put their head down in the water to drink. They're thirsty. They've been going through the desert. They're soldiers. They're uh, still trying to get their equilibrium about this assignment that they're called to. And so they're not worried about the proper way to drink water. But there's 300 men that take the hand down in the water and they pull it up to their mouth. And they lick the water out of their hand like a dog would lick water out of a bowl. And they keep their eyes on the hills to look. And the Lord says, those are the ones we need. But there's only 300. So he says, tell the 9,700 to go back home. And so now Gideon is left with just 300 men. He must have thought... If this wasn't an impossible assignment, it is now. There's only 300 of us against tens of thousands. Uh, They estimate even up to 200,000 soldiers uh, that they will go against. 300 men against 200,000. How in the world are we going to have the victory? But God gives them the victory. Oh, I mean, they get so confused. They start to fight each other. They start to eliminate each other. They take off running, uh, and these 300 men, there's 100 on this side of the mountain, 100 over there, 100 over there, and they rush down in there, and these men are so confused, and they're so upset, they run, and they run, and they run, and these 300 men, they run and chase after them, and when it's all said and done, Gideon has got a great victory, and the Lord delivers the children of Israel from the Midianites. Uh, I don't know what obstacle you're facing today. It may seem like it's insurmountable. But can I tell you, God can make a way where there seems to be no way. It may look like it's impossible, but God's going to bring a victory. As they sang about earlier today, joy is coming in the morning. Hallelujah. There's not a whole lot more that's said about Gideon after this unbelievable victory. He rules for a number of years as a judge uh, with Israel and still... There is this issue with Baal. He still has this name, this nickname of Jeroboam. But he indeed takes down all the idols of Baal. He returns the nation of Israel back to a place of worship in the one true living God, Jehovah God, as they are instructed to do in Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. He brings them back to that point. And uh, Joash, his father, is not heard from much after that. But Gideon, or Jeroboam, has, uh, the Bible says, 70 sons. 
70. He has seven zero sons. That's a lot of sons. And uh, he has one son that comes from a concubine, and this son's name is Abimelech. And after Gideon dies, Abimelech joins forces with the men of Seshem, who is a neighboring area, and uh, the men and the, the people of that particular uh, tribe were uh, his mother's brothers. And so these, a lot of them are his uncles. And he, and, and, and he goes to visit them, and Abimelech is a very conniving individual. And he convinces these men of Sashem that they should join forces with him because uh, you don't want 70 sons to rule. And if I don't come to the place of being your king, then you're going to have 70 leaders. And you're going to have to bow down to all of them. And you're going to have to pay taxes to all of them. And they're going to take all of your sons and daughters and bring them into war and battle. But he says, uh, we're family. And uh, if you'll join forces with me... I'm part of you. We're all family. We're together. Those 70 are my half-brothers. And I, I don't have any allegiance to those 70. But you and I, we are together. And so we can strengthen one another. And he convinces all of these men and the civilization to join forces with him. And they all say, let's do that, Abimelech. That seemeth good unto us as well. You're one of us. You're kin. You're family. Let's join together. And so they join forces together. And then uh, Abimelech hires some assassins. And he pays them from the treasures of the temple of Baal. And he hires these assassins to kill his 70 half-brothers. And they're able to round up 69 of the brothers. The youngest one, Jotham, he hides and he is able to survive. And so they round up these 69 sons of Gideon and they bring them to the town square and they put their heads on a block and they execute every one of them. And so Abimelech is now the one who has the reign. And so he is the one who is to be made king. And he goes... Uh, to the top of the mountain and he declares that he is to be uh, the new king. But when he goes down, uh, Jotham, uh, this youngest of the 70 sons that survives, uh, he uh, finds his way to go up to the top of a mountain. And he goes to the top of a mountain that is traditionally used to pronounce blessings. Uh, But he's not up there to pronounce a blessing. Uh, He goes to the top of the mountain uh, and they had been looking for him. Uh, But now he comes out of hiding uh, and he clears his voice uh, and he begins to declare and he speaks a curse out over Abimelech uh, and all the men of Seshem uh, and he begins to prophesy and everything that he prophesies is very specific uh, and it all comes to pass. Uh, I get to thinking that maybe... uh, this individual, he survived for the distinct purpose of proclaiming what thus saith the word of God. Can I remind you today that God is always going to have a voice in the earth that is going to declare the truth of the living God. It may not come from the places that you think it would come from. But God's going to have a voice somewhere. If it's Noah that's going to preach righteousness. If it's Lot that's going to tell the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. There's always going to be a prophecy. And there's going to be a voice of somebody that will declare the truth. Have you ever thought about the fact that maybe he has delivered you so that you could declare? 
Have you ever thought about the fact that God has maybe spared you for the purpose of speaking the truth? If you wonder why you're still alive, it may be that God has kept you here to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, to teach a Bible study, to share the good news with someone that Jesus is alive and God has a plan for your life. So lift up your voice and speak. Don't be afraid. Abimelech takes over Israel and immediately they all go back to Baal worship. But before the chapter is over, everything that Jotham, this younger brother, has declared comes to pass. Abimelech is defeated in the most humiliating of ways. He lays siege on a city and the men and the women run into a strong tower that's in the middle of this city. And in the middle of this city, they all go into this tower and Bimelech comes with his men and they say, hey, you need to come down. We're taking over this city and they refuse to come down. And so he says, well, that's fine. We'll just burn you out. And him and his men start to get wood and they start to put all the wood around the bottom of this tower. and They're going to burn these people out, men and women that have run up into this tower. We're conquering this city. And if you're not going to come out, we're going to set this tower on fire. And so as they're gathering wood and Bimelech is there putting wood down at the bottom of this tower, there's a lady at the top of the tower that's got a piece of a millstone, a big old millstone, a heavy rock, as it were, that was used in the production of farming and whatnot. They have a piece of it, and she's up there with this piece of, of millstone, and, and I can see her struggling with the weight of this millstone to get it up on the wall, and she finally gets it up on the wall and she waits and waits for her perfect opportunity. And when Abimelech comes close to the wall to put the wood down there to prepare to burn, she just pushes this piece of millstone over the wall and the millstone falls down and hits Abimelech on the head. And the Bible says it crushes or breaks his skull. And he falls out on the ground where this millstone has hit him. And now Abimelech, who is still conscious, bleeding, dying, but he's still conscious. And the thing that is in his head is that he does not want to die with the shame of being killed by a woman. This was the ultimate of shame at this time. To be killed by a woman. Nobody wanted to be killed by a woman. I mean, how could a woman take out a great warrior like Abimelech? Can I tell you today that if you sacrifice the truth of God's word for what this world wants to offer you and become an idolater and a false worshiper, there is shame that is in your path. There's nothing glorious about giving up your inheritance for anything this world has to offer. Abimelech pleads with his men, please kill me. Please don't let me die at the hands of a woman. And his men kill him. And after they kill Abimelech, their leader, they all retreat and they go home. From that day forward, it becomes known from that time in all of Israel that when you're fighting, you don't get too close to the wall. It's dangerous to get too close to the wall. In school, the story is told as the young Hebrew men learn that when you're battling, you never get too close to the wall. When you're fighting, don't get too close to the wall. There's danger if you get too close to the wall. 
The Israeli military has this as part of their training manual from this day forward. Don't get too close to the wall. It is certain death. Remember Abimelech. Every kid grows up uh, hearing about Abimelech. Uh, remember Abimelech. He's the guy who died when that woman pushed over that millstone and it crushed his head. Don't get too close to the wall. I believe it would do all of us well today to remember Abimelech. Don't get too close to the wall. Don't get too close to the end. Don't get too close to the world. You may feel like you're safe. You may feel like you can handle it. But you will die as a fool diet if you get too close to the world. So for years the story is told. Families tell their kids around the fire about Abimelech and how it's dangerous to get too close to the wall. Years go by. And finally, the Lord acquiesces to the demands of Israel. He allows them to have a king. And, of course, they have Saul to be their first king. And, and Saul becomes their king. And, and he starts out as a humble man, but he becomes very uh, prideful. And David is anointed to be king. And David is just a shepherd boy. And God tells the prophet Samuel, I can't deal with Saul anymore. You go and go to Jesse's house. And he said, there's one there of his sons. And anoint him with the oil to be the next king. And so uh, David uh, is anointed to be king, but Saul is jealous. And there's all of these fightings that go on because the old king is jealous and he knows that God's favor is upon David. And, and David has to run for his life and live as a caveman basically for 14 years. And he had just running for his life because he, he his own king is wanting to destroy him. And, and finally, uh, uh, the king, uh, uh, Saul, is so desperate in his uh, attempt to retain power that uh, he commits atrocious acts. And eventually him and his son, Jonathan, are killed in battle. And David is made to be the king. And uh, finally they unite together, Israel and Judah. All 12 tribes come together. And, uh, and David and his men, uh, Joab being his lead general, take Jerusalem, uh, a city that was so hard to take. They said the lame and the blind could protect it because it sits up on a hill and the walls were so tall. But Joab and uh, his soldiers found a, a way to get into the city uh, going down through Hezekiah's tunnels, tunnels that I and some others from this church have crawled in uh, as we go to Israel. They're still there to this day. Uh, but through those tunnels, and there's still water up to our knees as you go through there, Joab and his men made their way through and took Jerusalem. And uh, Jerusalem becomes the capital and David is reigning with the favor of God. And Israel becomes the most powerful nation in the world at that time. And David is the king and God is blessing them tremendously. And, and Joab is his commanding general. And Joab is very skilled in war. And David is a king who has the favor of God upon his life. And everything is under the blessing and the anointing of God. And so the Bible just gives us a little hint that there's problems because it says when kings go to battle, David stayed home. There came a time for them to war against the Philistines and, and Joab and his men said, David, we'll take care of it. You stay home. And so David is a warrior. David's used to having his hands in the battle. David's used to fighting and winning and defeating the enemy. But now David is king and David's at home and he's got his palace and his gardens and he's just walking around and wandering around and he's bored and he sees Bathsheba, a lady who is not his wife, taking the bath on another house on another area. 
and he calls her and they commit adultery and then he finds out that she is pregnant and now he's got to cover his sin. Uh, her husband Uriah is another faithful man in the army of Israel, but he's out on the battlefield and David decides he's got to cover his sin. So he sends word to bring you hot Uriah home from the battle. He says, Uriah, you're such a faithful soldier. I want you to come and spend a few days of R&R, rest and relaxation. And, and I want to give you a few days off to be with your wife and your family. And, and uh, Uriah is such an honorable man that he will not even go in and stay in his own house. He sleeps in the streets because he says, my fellow comrades are out there on the battlefield. And who am I that I could come into the comforts of my own home and my family and enjoy the pleasures of my wife without my men having the same opportunity to be with their families and their homes. And so David is so distraught by this. He thought he had the perfect crime. Can I remind somebody, you're never going to have the perfect crime. God sees everything that's going on. Oh, my friend, there's nothing like having the peace of God upon your life and your marriage because you know you've been true to your spouse. There's nothing like having the peace of God on your home because you know you're living by biblical principles. Don't get so used to the blessings of God that you forget where the favor comes from. Oh, David, he will pay for this the rest of his life. And so he tries to get Uriah. He brings him over for a party and they have a big party and they kill all kind of oxen and they have, he tries to put him in a food coma so he'll eat so much meat and he'll go home and sleep and, and still he won't go home. And, and so he says, well, stay another night. The next night he didn't work with food. He tries with wine and gets him all drunk thinking he'll go home then. And Uriah still will not go home to his wife. So finally, David says, I, I give up. So he sends Uriah back to the battlefield with a note that's sealed with a seal from the king. And he says, give this to Joab, the military commander. Give this letter to Joab. And in the note, David the king is telling Joab, lay siege on the city and put Uriah on the front lines. Adultery has turned to murder. Joab does and Uriah dies. And so now, as they are retreating from this place, to try to defeat this city. Of course, this was an assignment that Joab did specifically for the request of the king that this Uriah would die in close hand-to-hand -hand combat. And so now Joab is given instructions to a messenger who's going to run it back to King David. And so in these instructions, he decides that he will have a little fun with David because now Joab knows he has leverage over the king. He knows his dirty little secrets he knows about David what nobody else knows. And from this day forward, David will have trouble with Joab. Oh, my friend, can I remind somebody here today that the world is not merciful to righteous people who stumble. You may think God's given you the best friend in the world out there, but can I tell you, if you'll stumble in sin, it'll make them feel better about themselves. And they will not be there to celebrate with you when you pray back through at an altar. But can I tell you, you're going to still have brothers and sisters uh, that are going to lift up your hands and say, You know what? Uh, you may have fallen, uh, but guess what? We're all sinners saved by grace. Uh, you can't look to non-spiritual people to give you relief uh, from the stress of your life. Uh, You've got to come to an altar and say, God, renew in me a clean heart and a right spirit. The church has to be different. The church has to be merciful. 
We are committed to restoring our brother without ulterior motives. Joab tells the messenger, I want you to go to the king. And when you bring the message to the king and you tell him what happened, the king's going to be upset because he doesn't like to lose. And so you tell him everything that happened and how this, this group of our best soldiers went and they went to the wall and, and uh, they laid siege on the wall. And, and uh, he says, whenever you're telling them this story and you're telling them about how we were defeated, he said, the king's going to say to you, don't they know better? Doesn't Joab know any better than to get that close to the wall? He tells the messenger, he's going to say to you, doesn't Joab remember Abimelech? It's in all the training manuals. Don't you know you don't get too close to the wall? Why did he send this group of men? He said, when the king gets upset, and he's going to get upset. He's going to say, don't you remember Abimelech? What's the matter with Joab? And he says, all this is going to happen. He says, whenever he takes a breath from all of the shouting and his anger being fueled against you as the messenger... Then he said, I want you to tell him, oh, by the way, Uriah died. Joab was going to pull a little prank on David. He was going to let him know, hey, you got all upset for nothing. I was just doing what you told me to do to cover your little affair. Joab thought he'd have a little fun, play a little joke on David. And when David's critical about his military strategy, he'll remind David why he sent the men to the city. It was to kill Uriah. And so when Joab tells the messenger what the king will say, he does something that only one time in the entire Bible is it recorded. It's just hid in that little passage of scripture. He describes Abimelech as the son of Jerobosheth. The only time in the Bible that we see the description as being the son of Jerobosheth, not the son of Jeroboam. We see that his name is changed. We know it's the same Abimelech because it's to the reference of the same story. He's the same guy who was killed by the millstone falling down on his head. But Joab, all of these years later, doesn't describe Abimelech as the son of Jeroboam. He describes him as the son of Jerobosheth. Bimelech had always been described as the son of Jeroboam. That's the name they had given Gideon. That was the name that was given by his father. That's what he would be called the rest of his life. But in the middle of a little prank that Joab would play on David, he describes Jeroboam with a different name. Why was the name changed? History records that the epitaph of Gideon who was known as Jeroboam his whole life, was changed at the point of death to Jerobosheth. And the reason that it was changed is because of the verse that I read to you in our text. The Old Testament law that said, you cannot even speak the name of a false god. So they replaced the name of Baal and changed it to Besheth. The translators, the people that would speak back on the history of Gideon, They could not even risk speaking the name of Baal. And so they could not even use the name Jeroboam. They had to change the name to Jerobosheth. Two other places in scripture we see the same thing. Where a person with Baal in their name is changed to Besheth. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, who was dropped as a boy and was crippled the rest of his life. He was actually named Meribaal. 
which means he that resists Baal. But the translators, because of that Old Testament law, that you don't even speak the name of Baal, they changed uh, his name to Bephibosheth uh, because they did not want to say the name of Baal. Uh, Ishbosheth, the son of King Saul, who reigned for two years after his father had died, was actually named Ishbaal. But in all of these examples, the name was changed from Baal to Besheth. And Besheth simply means shame. Shame. In the case of Jeroboam, when it was changed to Jebusheth, it changed the verb. So that in the first name, it meant Baal will contend. But when it was changed, the possession of the verb changed. To mean Gideon would contend with shame. Not that shame would contend with Gideon. But when the name was changed at the death of Jeroboam, the meaning was also changed. No longer would now Gideon be known as the one that Baal would fight against. But now his name would stand for the one who would contend with Baal himself. He would be known as the aggressor and not the recipient. Another translation says Gideon would defeat shame. There is something about this that rings in my heart today. There is a finality that God gives us so that we are not on the receiving end of shame. For the rest of our lives. I've come to tell you today. That you do not have to be identified. For the rest of your life. And your children be identified. By the mistakes of their parents. And your grandchildren be identified. By the mistakes of their grandparents. And great grandparents. And on and on it goes. There is a place in the mercy of God. Where he changes what it means. No longer are you identified as being the devil's punching bag. But God changes your identity and says you will defeat shame. You will defeat sin. You are a new creature in Christ Jesus. Can I preach to somebody today that the notion that your legacy is one of being pursued by the enemy is over. It is dead. Your pursuer, your accuser is defeated. The Bible says that the enemy is an accuser of the brethren. He wants your life to be defined as being on the run, as being on the defense. But I stand today to remind you that Jeroboam is dead. I said Jeroboam is dead. There's a new creature. There's a new identity. There's a new purpose. There's a new meaning. All things are brand new. We can't do it on our own. But through the blood of Jesus, you have a new identity. You have defeated shame. You have defeated sin. You have overcome. The Bible says, And hope maketh not a shame. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts uh, by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. Uh, I said, hope maketh not a shame. Uh, 
as long as you've got the hope of heaven, uh, as long as you've got the hope of salvation, uh, you don't have to live under the tyranny of shame and condemnation. Uh, I believe God can change your identity. Uh, and now you can be known uh, as the Son of God. Uh, because Bible says in Romans, uh, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God have become the sons of God. For the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on Him shall not be ashamed. The book goes on to say, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Shame is defeated. Jeroboam is dead. Moses took the children of Israel down to the Red Sea after those Egyptian forces had come down into the Red Sea to try to defeat them. They had been delivered, but now Pharaoh thought second about it, and he sent his soldiers to go after him. The Lord opened up the Red Sea. The children of Israel walked over on dry ground, and then the Egyptian elite army, chariot warriors, soldiers fighting, flying through the Red Sea, coming after the children of Israel to bring them back as slaves, bring them back to Egypt. But then the Lord released the winds and the waves and the water, and everything came crashing down, and and the Bible says uh, that he took the wheels off their chariots. Sometimes the Lord can just destroy the momentum of the enemy. So they can't go any further. They can't pursue you any further. Oh, I feel a confirmation in the Holy Ghost today. I've come to give somebody hope today. The enemy has been chasing you, but God's going to turn the tables. I said the enemy has been on the run after you, but God's going to turn the tables. Come on, Jeroboam is dead. Come on, Jebusheth is coming to the forefront. There's coming a, a change in the spirit realm. You're not going to have to be on the defense. You can go on the offense with the sword of the spirit because God is on your side. Those waters came crashing back down on those Egyptian soldiers. They drowned in that sea and their bodies washed up on the shore. And Moses took the children of Israel down to the banks of the Red Sea as those bodies were washing up. And he said to those children of Israel, I want you to look at their faces, their lifeless faces. I want you to look at them because from this day forward, they will never haunt you again. For 400 years, they've been beating you. For 400 years, they've been breaking your will. But I want you to look at their faces. Because from this day forward, we've got other battles to fight in this desert that we're going. But this is not our battle any longer. I've come to preach to somebody today. I rebuke the idea that you will always be an alcoholic. I rebuke the idea that you will always be a pornographer. I rebuke the idea that you will always be a drug addict. You are not an idolater. You are not. You are not an alcoholic. You are a sinner saved by grace. You've been washed in the blood. You're an overcomer. Jeroboam is dead. Would you stand to your feet this morning? 
I feel in the Holy Ghost today that God is calling East Wind to move from a defensive posture to an offensive posture. It's time to take the battle to the enemy. It's time to take new territory, Sister Kathleen. It's time to win our colleges to the Lord in Jesus' name. It's time for young people to get so dedicated to the plan of God that when they walk into a store, there's a change in the atmosphere because somebody full of the Holy Ghost. I'm tired of being on the defense for the next thing coming out of Disney or the next thing coming out of wokeness. I'm tired of being on the defense. You are the army of the living God. We are the salt of the earth. He saved us to make a difference in this world. Haven't you been a punching bag long enough? You're the one that's contending. You're the one that's defeating. You're the one that's winning. Jeroboam is dead. Lift your hands all over this building right now. I ask you that you would lift your voice unto the Lord for just a moment. Oh, shota robosata. Yabashota robosita. Yabashota robosita. Oh, Jesus, Jesus. Yes, in the name of Jesus. Come on, I need somebody that'll declare war. I need somebody that'll take the battle to the enemy. step out of where you're standing right now why don't you make your way down to this altar if you can't get to the altar step out in the aisle but take a step because by doing so you're saying I refuse to be on the defense I'm going to go on the offense right here right now this Sunday morning service I said I'm going to go on the offense right now in the name of Jesus I'm going to quit worrying about losing what I've been blessed with. I'm going to go ahead and start trying to help somebody else. Come on, there's people all around us. There's people you work with. There's people you're going to school with. There's people that need God. The Lord just needs a messenger. Come on, you're not disqualified. God's got a plan for your life.